How many of you have ever used the phrase um, or made the statement to someone and said, uh, you've got it really good? You ever, use it, you ever said that to someone, you've got it good? Um, or you've been on the other side of it and somebody said to you, you've got it good. You've got it really good. Um, we just took our son to Iowa. No one just wakes up and wants to drive to Iowa. But um, at least I don't think anybody does. But we took our son to Iowa. He's playing in a, our youngest son's playing in a baseball league and um, for the summer. And um, so this town just kind of embraces all these kids. There's about 20, 25 of them and, and uh, that end up playing on the team. There's about six or seven teams in Iowa. And so they live with a host family. And obviously these people are complete strangers and so we drove to Iowa, and, and we um, get to the home where Andrew's staying, and um, they begin to show him around the house. And their kids are older, moved out of the house, and, and um, I would say that the, the parents, are, they're probably mine and Teresa's age, which is still really young, but, um, <laughs> and so uh, they're showing him around the house. And uh, they take, we take the stairs down. They say, Andrew, this whole downstairs is going to be yours. Oh, my goodness. So he's got this living room area with a television, a couple of chairs, a couch. Then way over on the other side is a, a nice queen-size bed. There's a little kitchenette in there. There's a foosball table down there. And um, I'm like, oh, my goodness. My boy's never going to want to come home. <laughs> so they're showing us around, and she says, Now, Andrew, um, I'm going to put a laundry basket right outside of the bathroom door. You just put all your dirty laundry in there, and I'll wash it. <laughs> At that point, I was beginning to gag. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. And then they said, uh, now, Andrew, we like to eat meat. We really like meat. And do um, you like to eat Oh, yeah, I like to eat meat. And so about three days later, Teresa and I are traveling. We did a little side trip, and I get a text from Andrew. And he said, Dad, you need to buy a smoker. This man really smokes some great meat. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, he's really not going to want to come home. He has a made this summer for eight weeks. He's got it really good. But do you know, guys, that you and I, who are in Christ, who are born again, have something that can't compare to anything else. We have it really, really good. And I want to show you that. That's what Peter's doing. You know, there's rhyme and reason to the order of verses. And Peter's putting together this case and he's reminding these believers that, listen, you may be facing false teachers. You may be facing these people who are wanting to, to move you away from the gospel. But I want to remind you, you've got it really good. And you know what's interesting is that if you go back to 1 Peter, that's where he begins to lay the foundation, that, to, that begins to tell them how good they have it. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, 
He says, you've been redeemed with precious blood. Right? Our salvation has been provided through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So that's where he starts. He's writing to these same folks. He's already written this first letter and now we're into the second letter. But he begins that whole foundation reminding them how good they have it. He said, you've been redeemed with precious blood. And then we started in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 and he says, you have precious faith. You've obtained precious faith. You've received precious faith. You know, if you're in Christ today, it's precious. There's nothing like being in Christ. And that, is, that, that little phrase, in Christ, is a significant phrase in the New Testament. Because it's speaking about those who are part of the church. You're in Christ. There's a lot that goes with that. And so he reminds them of this precious faith. In chapter 1, verse 1. And then he moves to precious gifts. And he specifically focuses in on the gifts of grace and peace. And then he tells them in verse 3, you've been equipped with everything you need for life and godliness. Wow, we have wonderful gifts. So not only do we have this wonderful faith that's been given to us in the person of Jesus Christ, but we have precious gifts. And these precious gifts, listen guys, these precious gifts allow us to come, cl- become closer and closer in our relationship with the Lord. And then, wow, what a foundation. Look at that. Precious promises. We have been given precious promises. Everyone in here who is born again, who's trusted Christ as their Savior, who is in Christ, we have these precious promises that have been given to us. You know, that little... Stick man started out by himself, right? And that represents the believer. And sometimes we feel like, as believers, man, what do we really have? Well, look what we have. We have a precious foundation in the person of Christ. We've been given precious faith, precious gifts, precious promises. And guys, you know what? We didn't earn any of it. It's been given to us. It's been given to us. It's better than any Christmas present you ever get under a tree. The gift of salvation. Having eternal life. And this morning our focus is on precious promises. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. And so it leads to this question. How much do we value the promises of God? How many of you enjoy reading about the promises of God in Scripture? Right? You enjoy doing that? Well, I, I do. I value these promises. You think about just the one, the promise of eternal life to those who are in Christ. How many of you like, I like that. You think about the number of people that are walking around right now in Birmingham, Alabama, who have no hope at all. None. They look at this life and this, you live and you die and that's it. Well, I like the promise that if I'm in Christ, I have eternal life. I like that's just one. So the question becomes for us, how much do we value the promises of God? Um, Hudson Taylor wrote a letter to his wife. uh, In one of his letters, he wrote to his wife. I really like this line in the letter. He, He wrote, we have 25 cents to our name 
and all the promises of God. How about that? That's rich. Do you think he understood that verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19? I think he did. My God shall supply all your what? All your needs. All your wants? No. All your what? All your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. <laughs> I really like that. It was an encouragement to me. You know, you look at, you may look at your, your checkbook sometime and think, well, I only have this much money, but we have all the promises in Christ. Paul reminds the believers in Philippi that our citizenship's in heaven. We're living for heaven. There are some other examples I want, I want you to think about uh, this morning before we get into the text, because I want you to think about some of the promises of the Lord. Let me give you just a few examples from Scripture. There's the promise of salvation to all who believe. Have you trusted Christ? Do you know that you know that you know? Salvation to all who believe. Remember what Paul writes? Jew, Greek, right? Everyone who is in Christ is promised salvation. We're promised forgiveness of sin. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 talks about the importance of Forgiving others just as we have been forgiven in Christ. Forgiveness of sin. You know, how many of you, have, you, you, write, you struggle sometimes? You know, well, could God, can God forgive me for this? He does forgive. The Bible makes it clear about the forgiveness of sin. And thirdly, uh, third promise is eternal security. We're eternally secure. Um. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we've been sealed by the Spirit of the living God. We are eternally secure in Christ. 1 John chapter 5 verses 11 through 13, focus on that. I was watching a news program just actually yesterday, and I wrote this note down, and I thought, I'm going to have to share it with these guys. On this news program... One of the commentators in the program said, Life is a horror movie. At the end, everyone dies. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Life is a horror movie. At the end, everyone dies. Well, life is difficult. But if you're in Christ at the end, listen, the Bible tells us we're going to see him face to face in all of his glory. Life is hard. It's not a horror movie. Well, what a perspective. And you know, when I was listening to that yesterday, the audience was laughing like crazy. And I thought, wow, that's sad. Not only from this person who's making the statement, but that's, listen guys, that's the viewpoint of so many people. We have a job to do, don't we? We have a job to do. We need to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. The fourth promise, like this one too. Paul says there is no condemnation to those who are what? In Jesus Christ. That's a promise. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we have new life in Christ. And Paul also says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, 
that he will finish the work he started. He's going to finish that work in you. He's going to complete that work in you. And then seven, I really like this one. We're going to forever be with the Lord. Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. You know, that wonderful picture, that wonderful scene of Christ coming back for his church. And verse 17 says, we will always be with the Lord. That's what heaven's about. Heaven's about the Lord. It's about him. And so, these are just a few examples of the promises that were given in the scriptures. Now I want to focus on verse 4 of Second Peter, and I want to kind of explain what uh, Peter's doing here. He's building his case, right? And he, he's letting these guys know, hey, listen, you have it really good. You've been redeemed by precious blood. You have precious faith. You have precious gifts. And now he tells them there are precious promises that you have as a believer. Let's read verse 4. It says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. The first thing we see is the giver. The giver of the promises is the Lord. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the Lord never what? He never changes. So when he makes a promise, it's what? It's a promise. All right, we can count on him. The Bible says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. By what? what, is, what is the, what are the, what's the basis of his promises? Well, that goes back to verse 3. The end of verse 3. The basis of his promises go back to his glory and his goodness. I like the fact that these promises are based on God's word. Based on his word. You think about the, in the context of promises, there's one scene that, I'll, that always comes to my mind when I think about promises, and it's the wedding ceremony. <laughs> Follow me, right? The wedding ceremony. And you have two individuals come, and, and they want to get married, and they stand before the preacher, the one who is um, doing the ceremony. And what, what do they do? They exchange vows. They make what to each other? What do they make? Promises. I promise this. I promise that. And I promise this. And I promise that. And then the other one says, and I promise this. And I promise that. And I promise this. And I promise that. And you know what? In all the weddings I've done, all of the people that I've performed weddings, I believe they've had good intentions. I promise Right? I mean, if you're the husband and you're questioning, right, you're going to be the husband and, and, and you guys have a conversation with the pastor who's doing the counseling and she might say, well, I'll try it. Well, that's not what you're looking for. Right? You don't want somebody who's going to try it walking down the aisle or the husband-to-be says, well, I'll try this marriage thing. I actually had one couple do that years and years ago when I was in New York and they thought they were in love and he was but when I said hey look this is what God says about marriage and it's a forever thing and she's like I don't know about that that's sad think about it for that guy but he was spared because when she would walk down the aisle she wasn't going to promise it was empty 
Think about how many people, just in the context of marriage, have broken their promises. Sad. But you know what? I got good news. The Lord doesn't break His promises. They're based on His character, His glory, and His goodness. You say, what about the length of these promises? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. Because the length is actually addressed in the verse. You say, where in the world is it addressed? Notice what he says, for by these he has granted. Do you know that the tense of that term might not mean a whole lot to you, but it's an imperfect tense, which indicates permanence. The length of God's promises, permanent. Think about the promises we just talked about. Forgiveness of sins. Who likes that? Right? Permanent. <laughs> the length of his promises, they're permanent. Right? They're based on his glory and his goodness. Well, what are these promises? I think in the context of the passage, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I think there's given some indication as to, to what these promises address that Peter's talking about. I believe they address specifically salvation and sanctification. But that's a, those are pretty broad subjects. But he reminds them of some of these key promises um, in the first letter that he wrote. So back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, notice what the text says. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a what hope? Living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All that stuff we, we read about this morning in 1 Corinthians 15 and that we sang, the choir sang. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now notice this. Here's a promise. To obtain an inheritance which is perishable. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. To obtain an inheritance which is what? Imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who's the you? Those who are what? Born again. Who are protected. <laughs> right? If that wasn't enough, he says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As you know, there, this whole salvation thing, we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Look at it. An inheritance which is imperishable. <laughs> we understand that whole idea of inheritance. Somebody passes away, we inherit we may inherit money, we may inherit land, we may inherit cars or boats. All that stuff, guys, it fades away. It fades away. Global warming is coming. There's a promise about it in Second Peter chapter 3. Now, have you always wanted to be on TV and talk about global warming? I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to say, look, I'm not the brightest bulb, right? But I can tell you this, this is what the Bible says. And I think what happens is that Peter's reminding these believers, listen, you're living for an inheritance that's imperishable, and it's promised to you. And it's, guess what, guys? It's promised to us. And the inheritance that we receive 
because we're in Christ is an inheritance that is forever. It's not going to burn. It's not going to fade away. So the basis of these promises and the length of these promises point back to the giver. And who's the giver? The Lord. He's the giver. You know, how many times has someone said to you, I promise. I promise I'll do this or I promise I'll do that. And, and what happens if they don't? Now, you begin to question, don't you? You know, the great part about the Lord, we never have to question that. I like what A.W. Pink says about that. He says, the permanence of God's character guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. The permanence of his... He never changes. He's the same, the Bible says, yesterday, today, and forever. And you contrast that thought with man and his promises. I mean, I've made promises before to people and I've broke my promise. Anybody guilty of that? But the Lord never breaks his promise. Not only does he tell us who the giver of the promises is, he describes, right? he gives us the description of the promises. Notice verse 4. He says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So he uses two adjectives here to describe the promises. The first one is precious. Precious promises. The word speaks of that which is costly or having unequaled value. You know, we think about something that's costly and uh, having unequaled value. You know, you may think about that antique car that you have in your garage, right? Maybe you like antiques, right? You like antique cars. I know some people do, and, and they buy these cars, and they'll refurbish them. And man, when they get that baby just like they want it to be, I mean, they're, 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 they're stroking that thing, right? This precious car. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And they treat it that way. They rub the car, right? They, now, they don't want anybody else touching the car, but they can touch the car. It's precious. It's valuable. It's unequaled in their mind to anything else. And, and it's for their enjoyment, but you can't enjoy it as much as them. Right? Because it's theirs. Remember the first set of golf clubs I got? I treated them like that. My dad bought me my first set of golf clubs when I was eight years old. And, and, and I remember going to the golf course and my buddies were there and my dad would play at the course and then and then he would you know let me play golf with my buddies and 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 you don't want to lend something that's precious to someone else and I remember one of the first times that that happened with my new beautiful clubs this one guy said hey that I don't have a five iron well too bad <laughs> right too bad that's my five iron that's how right that's how it works we there are things like that to us well, the way he describes the Lord's promises, he says, these are precious promises. Precious promises. But then he also uses another term, the term magnificent. This is an interesting word. The word is a superlative, okay? Meaning this, it describes something that surpasses all others. There's nothing like it. All right, there's nothing. In other words, you can't compare it. How do you compare being in the presence of Christ? How do you compare that? 
Right? How do you use some comparison here? It's beyond any comparison here. You know what he's telling them? Hey guys, you got it really good. <laughs> you got it really good. Not only are these promises for the Lord, but they're from the Lord, but they're precious and they're magnificent promises. They surpass all other things in life. Vance Havner. I really like this quote. He says, There are sickly Christians living on crackers and cheese when they have a standing invitation to to the feast of the grace of God. God's promises are checks to be cashed, not mere mottos to hang on the wall. Right? Like like this promise. I don't know what you're going through right now in your life, but I know this. A lot of people go through lots of stuff. And some of the stuff that you're going through is hard stuff. But don't you like the promise that says from God, I will never leave you and never forsake you? How many of you like that promise? I've had friends leave me and forsake me, right? I've had family do that, leave me and forsake me. But my Lord will never do that, see? So these aren't nice little mottos to be just hung on a wall and people go, oh, that's nice. No, Part of it, listen, we claim those promises. My God will never leave me. He will never forsake me. So he starts with the giver. He goes to the description. And then the last part of the text, he tells us the purpose. Why did God give these promises? Now, this is really good stuff here. Why did God give these promises to us as believers? Notice what it says, verse 4. For by these, his glory and his goodness, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Let me tell you one more thing about that word granted that I forgot to tell you that you really need. Do you know that that word implies it being announced it's not just something we keep, but it's an announcement. Just like we announce the gospel, the same root word. We announce the gospel, we announce promises. I mean, one of the greatest things we can do is encourage someone who's going through a hard time with the promise of God. Right? So, why did God give these promises? Verse 4 says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers. That word can also mean participants of the divine nature. Wow. That's quite a statement. In fact, there's no other statement like it in the New Testament. Peter uses that statement. He says, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Now, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying we become little gods. You know, people use this verse to declare that, that we become little gods. They take that phrase and they butcher it. Well, that's not what Peter's saying. Peter's not saying we become little gods. Peter's not saying that we possess attributes of deity. Um, None of us are omniscient. None of us are omnipotent. None of us are omnipresent. None of us are sovereign. All those belong to the Lord. Well, what in the world is he saying? That word participation or partakers 
is an important word because he says we become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, John Walbert says it means that every believer is a new creation in Christ. We participate, if you will, in the Lord's moral character. We're able to do that. And we're not able to, none of us are omniscient or omnipresent or I'm, uh, uh, omnipotent or sovereign, but we can participate and we do participate in the Lord's moral character. Let me give you an example. I want you to turn in, in your Bibles to 1 John, which you're not going to have to go too far, right? 1 John chapter 4. So Peter's not saying we become little gods. He's not saying we possess the attributes of deity that belong only to God. But what he is saying is that we participate in the character of the Lord. We're able to love, right? We're commanded to love as he loves. True or false? True. Is it possible to do? Yes. How? Only by the Spirit of the Lord. Right? The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 tells us, right? But we have to walk by the Spirit. And then we walk by the Spirit, right? We produce, the fruit of the Spirit is produced in us. But this illustration of love is really important. Because we know, the Bible tells us, we've been instructed to love. Notice verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. Okay, this is agape love here. This is the love of God. Let us love one another, for love is from who? It's, it's from God, the origin of love. God is love. And everyone who loves is what? What's that next phrase? Born of God, right, is born of God and knows God. So the only reason, listen, the only reason we are capable of loving like the Lord wants us to love is because we've been redeemed, the Spirit of God has entered us, and we're able to love with the love of Christ. That's the only way. And so John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. This is the same term, agape, agape. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, the one, look at this, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is what? Is love. So what Peter is saying is that we can participate in the moral character of God. We can love as he loved, and we're commanded to do so. And we can forgive. I want you to go back with me to Ephesians chapter 4. There are a lot of different ones that we could look at, but these are kind of two important ones that I wanted to look at. The first one is love. The second one is forgiveness. Now, I want you to back up in the context of the passage. Go back up to, um, let's go to verse, well, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, how do we grieve the Spirit of God, class? Answer? Class? Sin. You can speak up. Sin. Okay? And in the context of the passage, that's what he's talking about. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you 
along with what? All malice. And then he says, verse 32. Now, why is he writing all this? Because we're different, right? We're in Christ. Our walk is to be different. Verse 32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. You ever had to forgive another brother or sister in Christ? You ever been through that? You ever been through a situation where you know that the Lord wants you to forgive, but you stand and say, not going to do it? Anybody guilty? Well, but we do know what to do because the Bible tells us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So we've been forgiven by the Lord. And because we belong to the Lord, we can forgive others. That's what Peter's saying. You participate in the divine nature. You're able to please the Lord. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Hey guys, at salvation, we're different. We're different. So he uses that term participation. But he also uses another term that speaks to the purpose and its characterization. Look at that last part of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Turn back over there. 2 Peter 1, 4. He says, For by these he has granted to us, given to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature... We're new creations in Christ. And then look at this. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The phrase having escaped points to or stresses the change. There's been a change that's taken place in our life. We're different now. Where before we were characterized as those who were corrupt, dead, lost. Not anymore. You remember the days when you were lost and corrupt? You remember those days? When you were dead in your sins? Um, I want you to go back with me. Just one more text. Colossians in the third chapter. Um, Paul speaks to this change of identity or characterization. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. He says, but now, which is a transition, right? If you notice verse 7, he says, in them you also once walked. Well, in what you also once walked? Look back verse 5. You walked as a dead person. Notice he says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you once walked. You walked like what? Like what he describes in verse 5. That's how you were. That's how you were. That's hard to accept, isn't it? But that's how you were. The Bible says it. All right, but notice verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Wow, that looks like the same thing he's writing over in Ephesians. An abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Notice verse 10. And having put on the new self who is being what? Renewed to a true knowledge according to what? 
according to the image of the one who created him. Hello, we are new creatures in Christ. When you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were placed into Christ. You were sealed by the Spirit. At that point in time, something happened. You changed. And something took place that before that you were incapable of. The Spirit of the living God lives in you and you're able to please God. You're different. And that's, that's Peter's point here. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. My goodness, what a phrase. Having escaped, past tense. And it continues on, right? We've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. My friends, let me ask you a question. Is there a corruption in our world? Answer, yes. Turn on the TV, listen to the radio. Just watch people. There's corruption in the world. And so Peter stresses to his audience, he says, listen, there's a reason you've been given these promises. Because the Lord wants you to understand that you partake, are partakers of the divine nature, that there's a change in your life. There's a quote that I don't know who to give this um, credit to. But the author wrote this, If we meditate on his promises, we shall enjoy or we shall experience their sweetness and enjoy their fulfillment. Well, you know one of the promises that's been given to us as believers we're new creations in Christ. We're different. Old things, Paul says, have passed away. All things have become new. So the way I look at money, it's new. Because it all belongs to the Lord. The way I look at relationships, my marriage. I'm committed to my wife, right? Before when I was a pagan, I was like, well, maybe I'll try it. Let's see what happens. But because I'm in Christ, all things change. My perspective of people changes. My perspective of finances change. My perspective of family changes. And by the way, you know what becomes the most important thing in your new identity? A desire to see people come to Christ. You want to see them come to Christ. Because of all the promises that you and I enjoy. And so Peter builds this case, right, in these first four verses. And he talks about Precious faith, precious gifts, precious promises. I want to give you three points, three things to take home with you based on our discussion this morning about the promises of God. The first one is this, the promises of God are based on His Word. It's His Word, right? That's who we are looking to as we think about the promises of God. Secondly, promises of God rest on His character. He's a never-changing God. And then thirdly, promises of God should give us peace. They should give us peace. How many times if you were to just like look at your life in a week's time, let's just take a week's time, how many times in your week is there unrest in your life? Right? How many times in your week are you stressed out or you're anxious about something? You know, it may be in simply in perspective in a provision. It may be, hey, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. But the Bible tells us He does provide. He provides for all our needs. We can rest on the promises of the Lord. I trust that you're doing that. A few weeks ago, 
I was uh, on my way to the hospital. I don't know how well this picture is going to show up, but I was on my way to the hospital uh, downtown, and I had my phone with me. And I know you're not supposed to take pictures when you're driving, but I did. I took pictures. And I don't know if you can see this. Um, right? This little red button not work. Well, why won't the red button work? Huh? Oh, huh? Oh, yeah, it worked. And it's green. It's not red. Um, right here, I was going downtown, and it was, I mean, it had been pouring down rain. I'm talking about pouring. A gully washer, right? You heard of those? Now, we used to have those all the time in Louisiana. But right here, there's a rainbow. You can't see it real well, but I promise you it's a rainbow. And man, I mean, it was pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. I heard it rained a whole lot while we were going last week. But when I saw that rainbow, you know, the first thing I thought, man, Lord, thank you. Because your promises, they're true. They're true. Do you know, um, in Genesis... The Lord told Noah that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. That was his promise. But did you know there's also another promise? There's a promise in 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to close with this promise. Because I think that this is something that as believers we should be thinking about. Because I think it's going to help us as we look at people to see that there is an eternity, right? That there's going to be people spending eternity in heaven, but there's going to be a whole lot of people spending eternity in hell. In Second Peter chapter 3, listen to these words, verse 10. This is a promise. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That phrase, day of the Lord, has to do with judgment. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up, period. How many of you believe that? It's happening. Then Peter writes, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? That's pretty much in your face, right? What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. Guys, listen, global warming's coming. There's a promise of it. But for those of us who are in Christ, we have the promise from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that he's coming to get his church before this takes place. I like that promise. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your promises. Thank you for the reminder. That's what all this is intended to do. Remind us of really how good we have it. We have it really good. We have it really good because we enjoy all of the gifts that you've given to us. Paul says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. We are rich people. And I pray, Lord, that we would um, recognize that and stand on it. And the Lord, when times of trial and tribulation come our way, and they do, the next one's right around the corner, 
I pray, Lord, that You would remind us of all the promises that we have because we belong to You. And that our citizenship is not on earth, but it's in heaven. And that, Lord, um, we would admit to You that the daily circumstances of life tend to kind of make these things foggy for us at times. And so I pray that as we live each day, that you would remind us through your word of all of these precious and magnificent promises that we have because we belong to you. I pray that we would share those promises with others. That we would come to understand, Lord, in a real and tangible way, that we have it made. That our salvation is based on precious blood. That we have a precious faith that's been given to us. That we have precious gifts. Lord, help us to hold on to all of those things. They all come from you. And Lord, you, you can be trusted. The wisdom given to us in the Proverbs is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of our ways, we're to acknowledge you and you'll direct our paths. Remind us, Lord, that you are trustworthy. You can be trusted. And help us as we live in this world where trust is certainly an issue. People just don't trust anymore. Years ago, a handshake was good enough, and now even a contract doesn't mean much. I pray that you would help us to keep the promises we make to you. And we can do that, Lord, with the help of your Spirit. And so I pray you would help us. Help us to know that we can live to your glory because we are new creations in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. If we can all stand.